Welcome, guys, to the Wisdom Project podcast. I am here with Ned Berube. So, Ned, go ahead and tell us just a little bit about yourself, if there's anyone here listening that doesn't know who you are. You mean in terms of what I, where I've been? or Yeah. What? Who is Ned Berube? Okay, so I was uh, born in 1948 when Harry Truman was president. Not too many Harry Truman people left here. And... Uh, <clears throat> I was raised in a Waterbury, Connecticut, where I was born, and um, raised in a very uh, strict Roman Catholic family, Latin mass and all of that. And uh, so I graduated from high school, went to a Jesuit university called Fairfield University in Fairfield, Connecticut. This was all during the uh, Vietnam War, and uh, I became very engrossed in the whole Vietnam War protest. So I spent a lot of my time in my senior year in um, Washington, D.C., with where my friend was going to Georgetown. And uh, so we, uh, I just spent a lot of energy doing that, being a, um, trying to be a radical. And, uh, but I was also a pretty angry young man. And uh, so, and I really wanted to go to uh, graduate school in English, and I wanted to be an English professor and, uh, and have students uh, fawning over me. Uh, but that was probably not going to happen. Long story about that, but I, um, that's when everybody got a number, and uh, my number was 201, and that year they, uh, the government went up to the number 200 and stopped, and so I wasn't going to Vietnam, which was one of the objectives. But I did get accepted to graduate school at Marquette University in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I was a teaching assistant, and I met my um, my future wife there. She was a partner with me teaching for this guy named Dr. Schieber. And uh, so I wasn't really interested in her. She was terribly not interested in me. And uh, in fact, she had just become a Christian maybe a month before coming to graduate school. And that's a very long story. But she made a promise to God that she would pray for just one person at graduate school because... She, she reminded God that she was a very young Christian, and uh, so one was about her limit. And uh, so she actually met me, and within 10 minutes she knew she had her guy. I mean, she kind of picked up on my cynicism and my anger, and so she started praying for me and then asking me to go to church, and I said, no, I'm an atheist. We don't actually go to church a lot. And, uh, but she persisted. I mean, honestly, I forget how many times she asked me to go to church, and finally I said yes just to make her stop asking me. Honestly, that was my motivation for going to church. And it was, so I'm raised Roman Catholic and I went, for the first time I went to a, a Pentecostal church, which is somewhat different than a um, Roman Catholic church. In fact, I don't know if you can get farther away from a Roman Catholic church than a Pentecostal church. So I was um, stunned by the whole thing. And I, I really thought they were psychotic. They may have been, but uh, it, they looked like that to me. Anyhow, at, at a certain point then, I heard the gospel, and um, for whatever reason, and the, and the reason probably is the Holy Spirit, I, I knew that this was true. And so all of my atheism and Zen Buddhism, which was my other passion at the time, I, I put it away, and I actually became a believer in November of 1970. And, uh, and then I decided that I wanted to get out of graduate school. And I also wanted to decide I wanted to marry this woman who brought me to Christ. So Sue and I got married in 71. So this August we will be married 50 years. 
we have six kids. We have nine grandchildren. So this August will be 50 years, which is kind of stunning to both of us. It's like old people have 50-year anniversaries. I guess we are those old people. <laughs> At any rate, um, after we were married, we went to Bible school for literally for four months, and then we got out because it was... Um, we went to an Assembly of God Bible school. It felt like an Assembly of God high school. In fact, they called it North Central Bridal College because everybody went there to get married. And uh, we were already married, so we didn't need that. But then we got involved with a communal group uh, in Minneapolis. And uh, they actually lived communally. And they had, their teaching was just a lot more significant to us and deeper. And so we started going there and got way involved with them and... And at a certain point then, after about four years of being with them, the leader of that group asked me to take over a small group of people. So in 1975, I became the pastor of Baraka Fellowship in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, it was all of 12 people, I think, and we grew to the massive amounts of 40 or something like that. And then that same group then asked me to leave there and go to a Disciples of Training School over in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, which I did. And uh, I taught there for four years. And uh, it was something like a YWAM school, if you're familiar with that. Yeah. So, um, so I taught there for four years. We, long story, but we met with uh, a lot of people there. And uh, there was also a church there. And, and at one point, that church had about 200 people. And uh, the average driving distance of those people coming to church was 63 miles wow. one way. So it was kind of ridiculous that yeah. all these people are probably going past 100 churches as they come to their church. Yeah. And so part of what we decided is this cannot go on for very long. And so what we did is, um, so from that place in Wisconsin, we actually went up about an hour north to a place called Spooner, Wisconsin, and we started a church up there called Cornerstone Church which is still existing today. And uh, so that was my beginning and uh, doing pastoral work. So I did that for um, six years. And I was called down to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, took over a church and uh, also became part of an ecumenical community. I mean, ecumenical meaning Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox all together in a covenant community. Wow. So it was um, unusual. Yeah. But I became a coordinator in that group and... Uh, I was also a pastor of another church. Anyhow, all that to say that um, someplace down the line then, I, I brought our church into a group of churches called the ARC, the Alliance for Renewal Churches. So we did that for, um, and I planted another church called Christ Community Church. But then at a certain point, the founder of the ARC asked me if I would take over his position as that. And so in, I think it was in 19... 89, I became the president of the ARC, did that. The other thing that went on uh, was that in our home, we had six kids. We had a big house. We had seven bedrooms. And we rented out a couple of bedrooms downstairs to uh, foreign students. And we did that for years. Yeah. They would eat with us and uh, they would stay there. And I think we calculated over the years, we've had over 150 people live with us. Wow from about, I think it was 16 different countries. So it was really wonderful for my kids to actually kind of see the world right around the dinner table. And uh, yeah. 
they ended up having very uh, wonderful relationships with a lot of these uh, folks from Uruguay and from uh, Poland and from Japan and China and so forth and so on. Yeah. But then I, in 19, when was it, 19, I haven't thought about the years very much. About uh, seven years ago, I stopped being, the, I passed off the presidency of the ARC to someone else. And, uh, and I started another ministry called Whitewater Ministries where I would reach out to younger pastors and younger leaders, trying to mentor them and help them. So I've been doing that up till now. And, uh, but presently I am not a pastor and really enjoying not being a pastor, just being old and in, in a different season of life. So. Yeah. So talk a bit about this new stage of life you're in of not being a pastor after years of being a pastor. What does that look like for you? Yeah, it actually, Ethan, it's wonderful. Um, I, it kind of came clear to me, at, this was maybe just even about a month ago, it came to, clear to me that I am no longer publicly important. I am I'm not a pastor, I'm not a president, and, uh, and I just loved being publicly unimportant. Yeah. I'm still loving that. But it's also brought a deep quiet to me. And so the, the ministry that I've really been invited into by the Lord now is really the ministry of prayer, and so I, so that has become center stage for me as to, and I, and I, you know, I worked hard for 45 years to learn how to pray, and I, but I feel like it's only in the last year that I really understood what this, what this all means. And so, so that's been honestly a joy yeah. to actually learn how to pray. In fact, at one point, I actually shared this with uh, Doug at one point. At one point, the Lord spoke to me that, that I'm no longer a warrior do you, you ever see the movie uh, The Lord of the Rings? Yeah. See, the, uh, remember the uh, Aragorn before the gates of Bordor? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's who I thought I was. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of who I was in one way, but the Lord spoke to me and said, "You're no longer a warrior." And I thought, and then he almost immediately in my heart said, "I thought, what am I?" He said, "You're a spy." Mm. And I thought, a spy? I have no idea. But 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 prayer is really like being a spy, yeah. kind of getting. Getting, a, getting the Lord's heart for whatever situation and praying into that kind of thing. So that's where I'm at now. I'm an old spy, Ethan. That's what that. I do now. No, that's so good. Wow. And you said that was just in the last year that you're coming yeah. to that place with prayer. I would say the last year and a half, yeah. What are, what's the major differences? Well, the major difference is that when I was a pastor, I would almost always have a 6.30 meeting in the morning, meeting with some guy. Then I have another few meetings in the afternoon and probably another meeting at night. And uh, so I have no meetings. So I, I get up now and I, it's all open space before me. So when I pray, there's no, um, there's no pressure. I can be alone and quiet for however long I want to. And I learned how to be alone and how to be quiet over the years. It was a struggle, but I, I got there. But this now was the opportunity was this very luxurious... Um, space of uh, being before God and saying, really, and really just asking one question, which is, what's on your heart? In other words, I'm not here to kind of navigate something. I'm here to do what you want me to do and yeah. to say, to pray what you want me to pray. So that's been really the joy of my life over the last uh, year. Wow. Yeah. And so when you're asking that question, is it also then you ask the question and sit and wait, or are you then praying scripture, or are you, what's, what's That's that? That's a great question, process? Ethan. No, really, it's a good question. 
it's um, part of it. Part of it, I think, is learning how to come into the presence of the Lord. And for me, it's it's pretty simple. Um, in fact, I don't know if it's an old Catholic thing, but I have on my wall, I have a Rembrandt's picture of the head of Christ, mm. which is really a beautiful picture. Yeah. And I'm not praying to that picture. Right. But it always is important to me to understand that who I am praying to is a real person who's really alive, who's a human being. Yeah. And uh, I'm not talking to thin air. I'm talking to a person. And uh, so that's good. But I, but I do... Uh, I, I actually use a Lutheran prayer book every morning and it goes through four different readings in scripture and so forth. And so it does kind of just seed my mind and heart of uh, opening things up. And so oftentimes when I'm reading that and I'm also saying what's on your heart, something will kind of come alive in that and I'll just head in a certain direction. And when I pray, I, I write mostly just um, initials and so forth, but it's... um. But I find that if I don't write, I get utterly distracted yeah. and I go wherever that my mind goes, which is typically unhealthy. Yeah. So, so, I, so, I, so when I pray, I write. And uh, so, so it is, um, and then I, uh, and I try to listen. And, you know, and sometimes you're getting static and sometimes you're just getting bad information. Sure. And, and I've, you know, you kind of learn to discern that's worthless and move on. And uh, so it's a, that's kind of the direction. In my conversation with Doug leading up to this interview, uh, he used the phrase, you being put out to pasture. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? What does that mean? I, I suppose it's the issue of becoming um, publicly unimportant. Yes. But being put out to pasture is also, to me, it's a very positive thing. Because out in pasture, I just don't have a lot of responsibilities my it's almost my singular responsibility is to pay attention yeah. and to uh listen and so that has been utterly fruitful uh and so in many ways ethan i look at this position i'm in now as being as fruitful or more than when i was a pastor and president and all of that i would rather be here yeah. i mean if someone said we'd like you to take over this church and be the president of this or that i'd say no thank you i have to go pray so, wow. yeah, that's awesome. So there's a lot of uh, like organizational paradigms that normal people would love to be the pastor would be like, this is it. This is making it. Sure. And there are these organizational paradigms and power dynamics that come with that, that in a sense, you're kind of leaving, but you're finding new power dynamics in the kingdom. What does it look like? It's a good way to frame it, Ethan. Uh, I would say yes. And, um, you know, I, um, I knew that I knew that at the, at the age of 21 that I was called to be a pastor. And that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. It's kind of still all I want to do in and, and, and whatever form it takes. But, I, but at one point I was working in an insurance company. And, uh, and I was just complaining to the Lord about, get me out of here. I thought I was supposed to be a pastor. And, uh, and, and one time, I've told this story a lot to different places, but one time in the insurance company, I, I walked into the bathroom in the insurance company, and it was, I, I can barely describe how filthy it was. The toilet was filthy. The sink was filthy. The walls were dirty. Yeah. There was wet, wet things on the floor, wet paper towels. And the Lord spoke to me and said very clearly, clean it up. 
And then he said, in my heart, he says, this is what pastors do. Wow. And, uh, and so I cleaned up that bathroom. I was kind of weeping most of the time. Was I? And I'm kind of repenting about, complaining about being a pastor. And I thought, really now, do I want to do this? Because I had no idea what's this going to mean. Yeah. You know, dirty toilets and sinks and walls and wet paper towels. You don't know where they've been. Sure. So, but, but being a pastor for 45 years, a lot of it is just that. It's um, entering people's lives and their brokenness while you're dealing with your own brokenness, helping them with their brokenness and trying to bring the gospel to them. And uh, so, but any, when, so when I did become a pastor, it was, I loved it. I even loved all of the uh, difficult things about it because I was a pastor. And as long as I was a pastor, that's where I wanted to be. So however difficult it was going to be, it's like, that's, that's it. It's going to be difficult. So... Just keep doing it, but all that to say that um, all of the all of the things I thought it was going to be were really not there, yeah. and so the, the kind of acclaim and the kind of power, it was really not there. It was it was really all about serving and learning how to serve. And so raising six kids was all about serving and learning how to serve and so forth. So yeah, it was. Um, but it wasn't um, kind of coming to this place. This season of life has been. Just a much uh, how do how do I say a much sweeter kind of thing, mm-hmm. without all of the trappings of uh, leadership and power and dirty paper towels. Um, it's um, just uh, it's a it's a very different place. I'm I'm really loving it where I'm at. Yeah. So being a pastor for that long, there's a lot that you've learned how to operate in. Now being pulled out of it, what is God teaching to you? that is maybe breaking some of those old ideas. So one of the things that, um, when I started this other ministry called Whitewater, which was a mentoring kind of relationship, it came out of Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18, where the psalmist says, now that I'm old and gray-headed, and I thought, well, I fit there. Uh, <laughs> do not forsake me, Lord, until I proclaim your power to the next generation, to all, your goodness to all those who are to come. And I thought, that is where that Lord was calling me is to simply be available to every young leader in particular who I would come in contact with and uh, basically help them, help them understand what they're walking into, how to engage it, how to walk with it. And uh, so, so I think that that particular thing will not ever end until I die. Sure. That's got to be there. Yes. But, but you know, I have had that in my own life. I have had mentors in my life every step along the way. And I think, if you don't have that, I think I don't know how you actually pull this thing off. Because it is a, um, being a pastor is challenging. Uh, You know, beyond writing sermons, it's um, all this other stuff that just will take you apart. And uh, so how do you do that? For instance, one of the things I've learned in GDI, which has been so helpful, even though I've only had one sabbatical, is this whole issue of taking sabbaticals. Do you know how many pastors never took a sabbatical in their life? A lot. Most. Yeah. So so when you have a when you have sabbatical rhythms in your life, which many pastors just simply do not, it's just not viewed as some holy thing to do. It's it's viewed as a weak thing to do. Yeah. So, you know, being able to help people engage that whole process has been rewarding to do that. And the other thing the Lord spoke to me in my heart was um actually someone else spoke to me and said, You should not actually spend time with people who aren't leaders. Mm. And I thought, 
really. And I felt like the Lord reversed that. He says, I want you to pay attention to the people that no one pays attention to. I want you to pay attention to the little people. So I, I, I now have engaged um, people who aren't leaders necessarily right now, yeah. but probably they're going to be. Yeah. And because uh, I thought about the ministry of Jesus, he was forever connecting to the little people, to the nobodies. So, so that has been uh, rewarding too. But I had to kind of throw off this thing of, I should only be relating to leaders because yeah. I have this great gift. Yeah. I, don't have, I don't have this great gift. There is something in me that doesn't belong to me. Yeah. I've got to give it away. But, I've got, but, I, but I have to give it away to who he tells me to give it away to. So, so I'm trying to pay attention, Ethan. Yeah. Talk a bit about being a pastor and then realizing I'm transitioning out sure. of it. What did that look like? So, um, so for 16 years, I was the president of this ARC. And, uh, but at that point, uh, I was in my late 60s or maybe I was 70, but I, I realized I have got to uh, pass this off to a younger man. And uh, so I began looking for that younger man and found him, and uh, he took it over. And uh, that's when this whole thing came up with Whitewater too. And I realized I have got to make a seasonal change here. So it was, actually it was pretty easy. I mean, people would ask me, do you really miss being a pastor? And I would say, no, because I really, I was continuing to do what I was called to do, which was really simply to reach out to leaders. And so I just continued it. But then entering into this uh, more of this life of prayer has been um, simply, I, I still feel it's pastoral work in the sense of sure. it's just paying attention. I mean, being a pastor is paying attention and being obedient. And for the most part to the Lord, I'm, I'm kind of still there. It's just I'm I'm doing it as a spy now instead of an, a warrior. Yeah. I'm not charging the gates of mortar anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So it is. It, w it was not a hard transition uh, at all. In fact, I was just talking to someone out at lunch today, a guy who was in his early 80s who had a ministry, kind of a discipleship ministry for 60 plus years or maybe more than that. And he's 80 and he's still doing the same job. But over the years, he's had all of these good young leaders that he's, have, he just overlooked and none of them were able to be raised up. He never raised them up. He, he just couldn't let go of his his thing. I read a book one time that says, you know what, as you grow older, you're going to either become a, 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 a holy fool, an old fool, or a, or a bitter fool. Mm -hmm. And the bitter fools are the ones who um, simply, they can't let go. They're, they're trying to hold on to their past. They're trying to actually relive the stuff that they were good at. I heard another guy say one time, he had five principles. The first principle is life is hard. Second principle is you're not that important. Third principle is life is about others. The fourth principle is you're not in control. The last principle is you're going to die. And, uh, and, and it's just wonderful perspective. Yeah. Because dying now is... Um, it's not terribly far away, but it's not a fearsome thing. It's uh, just dying as part of life, yeah. as Forrest Gump's mother said to him. Yeah. Well, Forrest, dying is just part of life. It's like that big box of chocolates. So I shouldn't go there. So. <laughs> so in this process, what have you discovered about your own wiring and person and uh, personality? Yeah. Well, I knew that I was um, 
at a very 20 whatever I was called to be a pastor and I and I knew it was going to be more about dirty bathrooms than it was about giving great sermons and that helped and then at a certain point then people would say well you're apostolic and I suppose if you plant churches I guess you might be that but I, I never really gravitated toward that term the apostolic I think what was ingrained in both Sue and me was the issue of being a servant and and Jesus Jesus said at one point that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant. Got to be, in other words, you have reached the highest point when you become a servant. And uh, so wow. somehow that was um, ingrained in us in some of the ministries. And so, so and, and I think it's still there. It's like part of being a servant is um, how can I serve you? How can I serve whomever? Yeah. How can I serve this little child? I mean, Jesus cared about little children, too. One of the things I've thought about so many times is um, any person you meet, there is this incredible world inside of them. And a, a wise man will enter that, gently enter that world and see what you can discover. And it will usually be unbelievable. What's, what's in every human being, mostly human beings. But, um, but, but being able to... Being able to enter that world of their life and uh, and draw out from them, kind of what God has put in them, it's one of the, to me. It's the great discovery of all along the way of all these people that you meet. But oftentimes we just don't. We have no time to do that. Yeah. You know what, Ethan? I have time now. Hmm. I have time to do that, and it's really what I would would love to do. So my wire. What's that? What do you call what wiring is that? I suppose it's still pastoral. Yeah. At the core. In fact, when people would say, well, you're apostolic, I'd say, I think, maybe I don't really know what you mean by that. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I do know I'm a pastor, and I'll never stop being a pastor, kind of across the board. So sure. so that's that's my best wiring answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think that goes back to what we kind of asked earlier, of the differences between just being a pastor in the normal world and then like the kingdom's definition of a pastor is sure. different. I think so. Yeah. I think pastors, depending on the kind of culture they're in, pastors can have just a horrific time. And I have, I have actually, in my oversight of churches, I have seen some of the worst boards in the world. I mean, they just eat pastors. And uh, last night I met with the uh, elders at New Hope, and I told them, I said, this is the biggest elder group I've ever related to. There was 14 elders, and I thought, I've never related to that big of a group of elders. Anyhow, yeah. very healthy. And I know why they're healthy. I know the things they've done to get healthy. Yeah. So it's very encouraging to see. I've seen, I've seen some really disastrous boards, some elders groups. But uh, anyhow, it's, um, it's part of life. Yeah. But to avoid that, is great wisdom to avoid the traps you get into that any kind of uh, any kind of Christian culture will trap you into that kind of thing. Christian cultures can be the most non-Christian um, cultures in the world. They just they can just be dangerous places to live. And uh, and I've been in wonderful ones too. But I've I've seen the best and worst I think in all these years. I really feel like an old man talking to you, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mind being an old Great. man, though. So, yeah. What about uh, family life? What is this 
this season and this transition of seasons been like? And what have you learned uh, in your own family? You'll probably need two weeks for this answer. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. But we, uh, we had six kids. And uh, one of the regrets I have is that because I was so intent on discipling my kids, I've th I've thought back on it now, and I remember another guy said to me, "I didn't disciple my kids; I evangelized them." And I thought, "I wish I had done that," because trying to disciple your kids is um, you're just kind of trying to put all this stuff into them that they're not ready for. Like for instance, we would have evening devotions every every night, and oftentimes they would go forty minutes to an hour. I mean, think about that. <laughs> hearing, hearing your father talk to you for forty minutes to an hour about some arcane, biblical, whatever. <laughs> so I wish I, I've, I've repented to all my kids about that. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them have forgiven me. And, uh, but uh, but one, one of the things we talked to our kids about was, um, there were two, two phrases I used oftentimes. One was, you are not the center of the universe. Yeah. And the second thing was, you've got to learn to get out of yourself. And so we taught our kids values of honor and respect and so forth. We, we were pretty good at that. Uh, Sue and I were good at um, kind of getting into one mind together. And uh, so we spent about four, four or five hours every week just going out and talking about family life and talking about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and so forth, what we wanted to teach. And, uh, you know, we, didn't, we weren't successful in all of it, but we were, you know, we, we st we, I, I've often called sanctification, the definition of sanctification is stumbling forward in the right direction. Um, so that's so we did that in family life too. We stumbled forward in the right direction. So we have we have remarkable children, and the grandchildren. So being in the grandchildren st stage is great. My grandchildren adore their grandmother, and they tolerate their grandfather. It's pretty much honestly, it's pretty much like that. But my but my my wife is. I shared it with someone the other day. She might be the kindest person I've ever met, and she is just this unbelievable grandmother she just does all this stuff i mean if if you were her grandson you would love her <laughs> i mean i love her now Are you doing? <laughs> yeah. but but she would she i mean she under she understood how to actually care for this little human being yeah. how to get into their life she did it so she's done it so well so so they are they're always kind of calling her up and sending movies to her that they've done for her. They don't do that for me, Ethan. <laughs> but I, I, I delight in it for, with Sue. Anyhow, so I mean, uh, I, I've had to learn a lot because uh, the family I grew up in was, um, we were a pretty raucous bunch. We had, both Sue and I each have five sisters and one brother. So lots of our aunts and uncles for the kids. But we were, um, we were not the, we have learned to love each other now, but Growing up, it was, I think our, our favorite statement to each other was, you stupid idiot, which yeah. is quite a, quite a charming phrase. Sure. But um, so, so, so both Sue and I have had to learn how to actually uh, put off our family of origin culture and kind of start a new culture. And I, we worked very hard at it. And I think God gave us a lot of grace. But um, yeah, so... We actually heard a teaching once on culture, building culture that was, um, it was just absolutely formative for us. Mm. So we, we built a lot of um, celebration into our culture so that even, even now uh, we, have, we have all these really minor celebrations in our family too. 
but our kids hate missing any celebration that's happening. I mean, they literally will come from afar just to make it to this small little celebration because it just was ingrained into them. That was really what was shaping them. So anyhow, that was, I think that was a, a real plus thing that we did. And it, was, and it really was modeled after um, God speaking to the, to the Jewish culture about celebration. What we didn't get clear was sabbatical, but we got celebration pretty clear. Yeah. So I never had a sabbatical until, um, I forget what year it was, but actually it was your uncle, Doug, that talked to me. And because I, I've, had, I've had a few diseases. One was an autoimmune disease where I was in the hospital for like three months. And then I had a stroke, a minor stroke, and then I had a major stroke. So it's like, and I think what he said to me is like, if you don't write, if you don't take the sabbaticals you ought to, sometimes they're just sabbaticals that are put on you. And I think it's true. Yeah. So, so now I'm being really diligent to take my sabbaticals. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't want any more strokes. I'm done with strokes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and that's, I, I, I mean, we're both we're both grateful for the our families that we grew up in, but there was a lot of things that just simply were not there and. Uh, so I think what it has to happen for a lot, everybody is you have to actually go back to your family of origin and say, what did not work right there? And how do I actually navigate this life now as opposed to what happened then? Because because when that stuff gets stamped in you way back then, it just doesn't automatically uh, evaporate. It just kind of works works through your whole system. And uh, so part of it is then being able to bravely look back on that and say, guess that didn't work well. And how do I how do I change this thing? Would you change me? Kind of a thing. So, yeah. Have there been any noticeable relational differences in the last year and a half that you've noticed with my kids? Yeah. Well, for, for one thing, um, what became clear to me is that the second stroke I had, which was really a bigger one, was necessary for me because what it did is it um, it kind of diminished me, mm. and uh, and I needed to be diminished. I needed to be reduced because. So it's made me much more gentle. I'm not a naturally gentle person. I'm not naturally compassionate. Mm-hmm. My wife is all of that. Yeah. That's why her grandchildren adore her. <laughs> but I, but it's not. It's not the first thing coming out of my soul. Yeah. That has that has been a noticeable change. I'm much more. I'm much. Everything has slowed down for me, largely in a healthy way. But um. But the slowness. I'm, I, I never was slow before. I was the first one out there, the first one yeah. charging up the hill. Yeah. Now I'm not. And I'm, I'm kind of lagging behind, mm-hmm. wondering what's going on. So so that has been a noticeable change. It's been a wonderful change. I would, I would say I'm probably a better person, but I'm, at least I'm gentler. What about specifically your marriage? How has this transition, this last year and a half, what's been different in your marriage? Good question. These are good questions, Ethan. Um, I feel like I have um, rediscovered my wife. I mean, before she was an amazing wife of a pastor, but she never fit the pastor's wife role in the sense of she's going to play the piano and she's going to do all the women's thing. Right. She was not into that, and uh, which is fine. But um, I think I think I just have simply rediscovered or discovered kind of some of the deeper things in her soul. And um, at one point. But I said to her, and she would not buy it at all. I said, "This season's going to be about you. It's not about me anymore." I am. She's not. She simply does not go that way. But she. 
um, she has so many women that are um, look to her for uh, just for wisdom and grace and her and mentoring. But I am um, so that has been interesting. Uh, so many, so many of the people coming to our home now are women that are coming to see her. Before it was everybody was coming to see me, mm. and uh, and now I have to set up appointments for someone to come and see me. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's really, uh, it has been much more about her and much more about a. I mean, we were good partners in the ministry, but um, I would say much more now. Our souls are much more. I would say closer, mm. and uh, we really like each other. So. But I, but I think that has been a, a positive adjustment that's taken place. She's very intelligent, and uh, we both read a lot and share what we read. And uh, I don't understand the stuff she reads; it's too smart. So, if there's any younger pastors listening to this, any advice or things you just want to say to them that they should be aware of? Yes, I would. As Charles Spurgeon said, if you can do anything else than be a pastor, go and do it. But on the other hand, if you're called to be a pastor, you've got to go that way. And it's wonderful. I would say if you're called to do that, it's wonderful to actually do it. It's challenging. But as far as advice, I would say make sure that you actually seek out a mentor that you really can trust and uh, somebody that you can actually connect to, even if it's just by phone. Someone that you know is going to care for your soul. I think it's Psalm 142. It is 142, where David prays. He says, he says I look to my right and look. And he says, no man cares for my soul. And I, I think that's kind of, he was a great leader, but it was just one of the expressions of the deep loneliness of a leader. Yeah. And uh, many leaders are deeply lonely. Mm-hmm. No man really cares for, them. they're caring for everyone else's soul. No one cares for their soul. Right. And it's just, it's just not the kingdom of God that that should happen. Yeah. So, one I would say, find a mentor uh, who will care for your soul. And uh, and then secondly, I would say that your your first ministry is your family. It's You cannot neglect your family and be the pastor of the, or the leader of the organization or whatever it is. It really does begin with your marriage and family. It's got to happen there first. That's the seed bed. So, yeah. how about that? Pretty good, huh? That's great. That's excellent. <laughs> That's excellent. One more question um, about prayer. Advice on how to pray better to be just crass, I guess. Well, I honestly, Ethan, I feel like I'm still learning. Um, I mean, I, I worked hard at it for 45 years. I read all the books, Yeah. and uh, most of them were worthless. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say it that way. They didn't do me any good. They 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 projected prayer as this amazingly hyper spiritual thing that, and and I thought I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. So I, I did numbers of things. I worked hard at it, but it was only really I would say the last couple of years that to really understand silence and solitude properly and to understand how to engage a spiritual being. I mean, think about it when you pray. You're talking to someone you can't see, you can't hear. Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is really not making any sense at all. Yeah. So how do you actually engage spirit? I don't have an answer. I, one, of, one of the simple things I'd say is, is, is to actually be quiet, listen, and to, and to seed your mind and heart 
with the word of God, yeah. and to do and to also do to do good spiritual reading. I just finished a biography of Eugene Peterson. You know him? Uh, I've heard the name. It's a spectacular biography. It's called "The Burning in My Bones." But he his his great desire in life was he said, "I want to be a saint," and uh, and so he learned how to he learned how to pray and he learned how to be a pastor out of that. I, I, I use this Lutheran prayer book. It's very, very um, rote in many ways. But, but, but if, you, if you can be quiet and listen to the word of God as it's coming to you, and at the same time paying attention to the spirit of God and to the real God who's listening to you and who does communicate, how do you do that? It's a, it's a, it's a learned process, I think. And I think part of it is the determination to, um, to get good at that and uh, and you can you can try to get good at it, but then God is good to you in the process. He actually shows up. The other thing that helped me is I think I mentioned it is to is when I pray I write, even if it's just initials, because when I put the pen on that paper, that's real. Yeah. And uh, everything else is I don't know. I hope he's listening. You know you know he is. Yeah. But it's it's spiritual. How do you how do you do spirit? You know. So I'm, I'm still learning how to do spirit. Thank you, Ned, for being on the Wisdom Podcast. We're going to end it there. You're welcome, Ethan. Good job.